You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Doug and Greg Stokes, Lanyap Podcast. We're both feeling refreshed. We took our first podcast break, weekly break. I think probably the first time ever uh, since we launched this two years ago. Um, anyway, we are sitting here. It is Thursday, January 4th, and a lot's happened since we last spoke. Remember the last discussion we had, we were uh, questioning whether the Santa Claus rally was going to occur, which um, the last week of the year is typically the best week in markets. Uh, that didn't come to fruition. However, um, from November 1st through Christmas was one of the great market periods, stock and bond market periods in history. So it was awesome. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, we didn't get a Santa Claus rally, so to speak, from the technical term, but who cares? Uh, I want to talk today about um, a really great article. At least start with this really great article by Ben Carlson from two days ago titled, What Comes After a Good Year in the Stock Market? I think a lot of the uh, intuition uh, amongst investors is when you have a great year, you're bound to have a mean reversion type year. And so uh, when you get a great stock market year like we got last year, that must be a setup for a bad stock stock market year in 2024. And so I'm going to go back and look at history and, and see whether that's uh, correct or not. And uh, and Ben did that work for us. Ben Carlson, who writes the Wealth Common Sense blog, who uh, is probably our one first or second favorite um, blogger out there, him and Morgan Housel, at least for me. Um, so this is... Uh, uh, the article from a couple of days ago, and uh, here here's basically the results. Um, there were seventy, there were gains seventy percent of the time, following ten plus percent gains, seventy percent of the time, following fifteen percent gains, and sixty five percent of the time, following twenty percent plus gains. And so last year, the S and P five hundred experienced a twenty percent plus gain, and so two of every three years after that. Going back to 1928, the market was uh, positive on average for an average return of 11.4%. So basically, the summary of this analysis is that you're better off betting that the market is going to go up than the market's going to go down. And uh, this is a great uh, quote from Urban Carmel, who's an economist that we follow. Uh, He says, the single most important chart to understand the stock market Gains happen 78% of the time. It is six times more likely to gain 15% or more than to lose 15% or more. You are hardwired to avoid risk, and that's why almost everyone underperforms. Um, that is uh, an, an incredible uh, quote from, from Urban, and I couldn't agree more. We're, we're hardwired as humans to avoid risk. That's how we survive. Um, and so we're always looking for the negatives out there and trying to figure out um, when the next black swan is going to occur and tr- try to position ourselves to uh, make sure that we sidestep that. In markets, we're better off expecting um, positive performance because that's generally what happens. And that's just the arc of humanity, positivity. I mean, we have our blips along the way, but if you look back at the, over the last 100 or 200 years, 
where we were then to where we are now is incredible. And if you look at back the last 10, 20 years, where we were then relative to where, where we have, be- what we've become and how our lives have evolved and medicine and technology has been, has, is incredible. And that's, if, if history is any guide, that's going to continue. Technology is going to get better. Um, it may even accelerate. Um, it's accelerated certainly since the, from 2000 to 2010 and 2010 to 2024, um, but if you, you're right, I mean, like if you look at the, the, um, the, the charlatans out there, they're calling for a correction already. Um, you mentioned that historically after these sorts of periods of time, it's like a 65% chance of positive returns or something like that. The, this is from, this is Michael Burry, um, who was, uh, famously, and we've talked about this individual a lot, um, made a ton of money in the big, sh- uh, during the, the, uh, subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, 2009, uh, and then since that has become a, uh, a bear essentially, um, calling for corrections. This is January 2nd, last year, last year's of the S P 500, 2021 up 27%, 2022 down 19%, 2023 up 24%, 2024 down question mark it, down question mark, keep it simple, stupid exclamation point. In other words, he's calling for a crash and looking at the relativity but he's right. It has been a relatively volatile last three years. It's been a ping pong, if you look, ping pong last few years, but that's not that's atypical. Not that's atypical, and yeah. what's typical is what you pointed at pointed to. And if you look at and if you stretch your time horizon, it's that you're you mentioned there's you're six times more likely to have these sort of periods of time versus other other the other way around. Um, so, and but but that being said, along the way there's going to be choppiness. Um, this is a, a quote that was posted or a blurb that was posted It's good to remember that the average peak to trough correction per year is 14.2% since 1980 for the S P 500. This is from JP Morgan. So every, during the year markets have averaged over the last 40 years, something like eight or 9% or something like that. But intra year, meaning during the calendar year markets on average go down about 14%. And, and that same thing happened last year. We had at, at one point last year, stocks were in a 10.3% correction. It still gained 24% on the full calendar year. And then the takeaway from this is that even strong years tend to see some scary moments. Um, so we're going to have some scariness that's going to occur. Charlatans are going to come out. They're already out. Um, but if you look at this at, at things historically, um, you should be okay if humanity continues to do what it's done since we invented the wheel or whatever. Yeah, I would also say that um, just to start the year, it's been pretty interesting. The reversal in trends, really, what a lot of what twenty twenty three was was a reversal of what occurred in twenty twenty two. What worked in twenty three didn't work in twenty two, and vice versa. Um, we're starting. It's we're three days into the trading year in uh, in twenty twenty four, and we're starting to see those uh, trends resurface. The Magnificent Seven, which was the um, really that the carried all the news in, in 2023, the seven technology stocks that were uh, carrying the whole market um, are having a, a rough start to 2024. Apple specifically got up to uh, close to $200 a share is now at about $180 a share. Uh, that's the beauty of owning a diversified portfolio. What didn't work last year has started to work this year. It's financials, it's uh, healthcare, it's energy. And so, um, you know, the, it, it's, it pays not to, uh, take these singular bets and to have a fully diversified portfolio. You kind of feel like you're stupid in 2023, but in 2024, um, you're, 
you're not part of that that wave, and so you've got um, some sort of downside protection when uh, when those companies don't work out. And so, I think um, you know, betting on uh, humanity number one, betting on a diversified portfolio, not simply concentrating amongst a few different stocks, is important. And number three, I thought this was uh, fantastic. Not just betting on humanity, but betting on America. Um, this was a chart on demographics and the de- demographic trends uh, in uh, across the globe. This is uh, Eric Bismagian. Uh, he says it's hard to be bearish on the U.S. in a relative sense with the current global demographics backdrop. And this is just absolutely amazing. It's the expected change in 25 to 64 population versus 2020 going out to 2050. Uh, the United States is supposed to gain 6.7% in population uh, for population ages 25 to 64. And then it, it compares us to China, Japan, and Europe. Uh, Japan is supposed to lose 27% of its age 25 to 64 population. China, 19%. Japan, uh, Europe, 17%. That is a huge, huge drag on economic growth when your working age population is declining by upwards of 27% uh, in Japan and, and then 17% in Europe and China right in between. Uh, how do you have uh, you know economic growth when you ha- you have to have major productivity gains, whether it's through AI or whatever it is, because uh, working age population that is declining and declining rapidly is does not bode well for those uh, those economies. And and so when you look at America at a six percent population growth doesn't doesn't look like a whole lot, but compare that to the rest of the developed world, uh, we're we're in a pretty good position. Right. When Japan's an outlier because it's capitalistic. And so maybe they could conceivably have some ingenuity that takes place, but Europe going down 17% over the next 25 years in that age cohort. And then China going down 20%. You got to, Europe is basically there. The GDP, Europe's uh, GDP and stock market really hasn't done anything ever since the global financial crisis because there's so much bureaucracy and it stymies any sort of innovation or, capitalistic type behavior on a, on a big scale, unlike the United States, obviously that is a sort of light on the shining light on the shining light on the Hill. And then China, on the other hand is essentially like a kleptocracy. So they have these few people, a few families that own everything um, through, through their uh, government connections or what, what have you. So it's going to be difficult for both of these uh, entities to that have really closed societies from on, from the standpoint of China and also lack of development and capitalism and ingenuity and on Europe's part to advance in, in the face of these demographic issues. Um, it's going to be a real, really challenging situation. On the other hand, you've got the United States who's, um, who, who has all of these positivity, positive things happening from the standpoint of um, open, openness, openness and comp- competition and capitalism. And we also have this tailwind of um, demographics in this major cohort that's paying everybody uh, or paying for everything. That's, it's going to be a really interesting story. Uh, and I, and I agree I'm bullish on the United States for a variety of reasons. And this just further reinforces that. And Europe looks, it, Europe looks really kind of scary. Um, it's really struggled and you can see how the, there, a lot of these states are socialists as well too. And um, like, for example, in France, there, the, the, you can retire basically at 62 or something like that. And they were rioting when they tried adjusting that to 63. 
So they're going to have some major reckoning when the uh, when their actual workforce population's not um, the same level as it is today. Yeah. So and that that doesn't necessarily then mean that you want to own all your all United States equities or you know vice versa. The market knows this. That's that's one thing that we like to stress a lot with clients is is, is essentially the the market is pricing in all available knowledge. Um, and obviously at some, some instances is very inaccurate with that, or, um, you know, there's inefficiencies in, you know, different, different individual companies, but it's, it's best guess of uh, the future. And so when you look at the United States versus Europe or Japan, for example, and you're saying, or China really, and you're saying, look at that decline in population, uh, look, let's see how that corresponds with a, a decline in, in growth of GDP compared to the United States. Why would I want to own any other asset class than United States equities? And, uh, and the way that we look at this is essentially what is the price to earnings ratio of um, you know, United States versus um, uh, international equities. And so uh, U.S. is currently trading about 20 times earnings, which um, – if we go on a forward basis, more like 19 times earnings, which is slightly above historical averages, uh, international XUS. So this is MSCI all country world XUS uh, trades at currently um, 13 point, or sorry, 12.9 times versus 19.5 for the U.S. And so a lot of this is priced in, which makes it very difficult to. China's trading at nine times earnings. Yeah. I think Japan is something like that as well. So, and, and Europe slightly higher. Um, so it's really difficult to make a, uh, investment decision based upon specifically on a year over year basis, based upon uh, long-term 2050 type demographic trends, uh, specifically because the market prices in a lot of this stuff, but, um, it does bode well for, uh, just prosperity in the United States. And, and that's really the important component is that, um, as bad as things seem here from a uh, domestic perspective, whether it's, uh, you know, political issues, populism, division, et cetera, we're nowhere near as bad uh, on a trend basis to, to the rest of the world. And, um, and the United States will continue to be that, that shining light on the Hill. Speaking of trends, have you seen, uh, do you see Abercrombie and, and Fitch's stock price? I saw something about it. So, uh, Aber, Abercrombie and Fitch. If this is something I just learned over the last couple of years, as as my wife pointed out, but the '90s fashion is becoming a thing, hairstyles, etc., with younger people. And Abercrombie and Fitch, for those of you who don't know, was is a uh, major '90s, 2000s Doug Doug and I's era uh, fashion house or whatever in the mall. And uh, their stock prices um, is now at ninety dollars and ninety six cents, and it's it's showing a six hundred and ninety. One percent all-time percentage gain. So um, that trend is basically catching on, and and all of us, I was interested to see that Abercrombie and Fitch is doing really well. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever wore it, any of that, but um, good for them. I remember uh, they also th- their big trend back in the '90s was the uh, frosted tips in your hair, and I think you had that at one point, didn't you? Right. No, I did the. Uh, what was the sun in? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i know i'm glad that i'm glad that social media doesn't exist didn't exist back in the we know at that when i did that because yeah. it would be pretty funny yeah exactly i'm sure we could dig something up though um yeah i don't i don't want to go back there um 
One thing I think is interesting is to start the year is what's happened to the bond market. Um, let's just uh, getting back to sort of trends. It, it seems that there was a lot of positioning at the end of the year to make sure that, um, you know, when you're, when fund managers were showing their year end reports, they were either long duration or bond in bonds or long, uh, the magnificent seven. And then to start the year, start sort of unwinding that trade. Uh, the 10 year treasury is now at, at, four percent it's 3.991 as we speak um got down right after christmas to about three point uh let's see like 3.7 3.75 and so we've had a pretty pretty big jump in the 10-year treasury in the last uh two weeks uh this is from at the, the end of the year this is from um uh from twitter it's a this is the Cabasi letter, it says, you can't make this up. The market is now pricing in a base case of seven interest rates c- cuts in 2024. There's even a 10% chance of an eight rate cut in 2024 with a 1% chance of nine rate cuts. In other words, the markets are saying there's a possibility of up to three times as many cuts as what's uh, currently being forecasted by the Federal Reserve dot plot. I think what we're lot, what what happened at the end of the year was just um, you know people were trying to position for the bull market and bonds uh, before the year started, uh, and now some of that positioning is being right sized. So that four this four percent rate is uh, has crept back into the existence, which is more in line with the the uh, uh, forecasted uh, central bank policy, and we're not getting super aggressive on rate cuts, and the ten year treasury isn't isn't really reacting to that. Greg, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I found it interesting. Yeah, I find it interesting as well, too, when we the whole uh, narrative has sh- just shifted so dramatically towards last year, and that was it, but it's for this major uh, market run and decrease in, in uh, treasury yields. Um, what, I, what I found, and I don't really have anything to add on that specific point, but what I did wanted to point out to our listeners is that the, the actual incidence of a rate cut um, and, and in the, so this is actually the, the incidence of a rate cut or the end of a hiking cycle is really typically bullish for stocks and bonds. Um, but this is data that goes back on the SP 500 over the last seven or so, um, hiking cycles. And basically over the last seven hiking cycles, there has never been a 24 month period whereby, um, stock whereby bond returns have been negative. And then there has there's only been one out of the last six or seven instances where um, stock returns have been negative. So um, I think that the narrative quickly changed to higher for longer to they're going to have eight cuts over the course of the next uh, 12 months or whatever. I think that's yeah, we, just swung, we just swung super far in the other direction over two months. I think uh, people are so confused in this market. Um, I think with the fact that the fed was late to raise rates then raise rates so quickly um and that sort of shocked the system and i think that um you know then you know economic data became better than expected then inflation data came down uh, faster than expected and so there's just a lot of positioning that's occurring out there that and and guessing where this is going to go and I, I just don't think that um you know i don't think there's going to be eight rate cuts this year. And I think that that's uh, just some normalization over that overcorrection to the other side. Uh, that's, that's my, take I couldn't on. agree more. And, and, but I, I think that in either case, even if, if it's less than that, it's still typically these, uh, a, a, uh, the, the saying that traders have had is don't fight the fed, meaning when the feds raising rates, you shouldn't be you know buying into 
the the narrative that things are going to recover. Of course, that didn't really work this last go around because the narrative shifted so quickly and returns happened so quickly on a positive upswing. But likewise, if you have an easing cycle, then that's usually typically bullish for stocks and bonds. And we're in the early innings of that right now. Um, we're month basically the the market's pricing no no more increases in rates. Who knows if they're going to actually do that or not? But I would imagine that we're done with the uh, increases in rates and they're most likely going to be cutting. I agree, not eight times or nine times. There's markets prescribing a, a, a 10% chance of a ninth cut. But in any event, in the, from the standpoint of the, the fact that we're month four or whatever from the last hike, that typically is bullish in markets. And the only time that that didn't work out in the stock market was 99 to 2000 um, when the, we had the, you know, the dot-com bust, essentially. And then led that led into nine eleven, et cetera. But proceeding uh, uh, from twenty four months from the actual point in time whereby you had a uh, the last rate hike in the Fed, the markets have tended to be very positive. So hopefully that trend holds because then bond and stock returns will look pretty good. Yeah. Well, um, one thing I was thinking about is uh, animated prediction last year that I was that um, I will now admit was wrong. But I'm going to go ahead and double down on this. Um, last year, around this time, when we we're thinking about what's going to happen in 2023, I said I thought that diversification between stocks and bonds would be back. That st- that bonds would offer diversification to stocks. Turns out that both bonds and stocks were up in 2023. So holding holding them both was was great, and they were highly correlated with each other. So in an up year like 2023, you want bonds and stocks to be highly correlated because they both produce positive results. Uh, on the other hand, in a down year like 2022, when they're highly correlated, you have no place to hide. Both bonds go down and stocks go down. So I saw this. This was bonds and stocks have moved in the same direction 19 out of the last 24 months through December. The last time they were positively correlated was in this positively correlated was in September 1998. The only time they were more positively correlated was in September 1995. We're in unprecedented air um, in terms of diversification among stocks and bonds, and essentially you've gotten none over the last couple of years. And I'm going to go ahead and make another prediction for 2024 that that trend reverses and that stocks and bonds offer diversification for investors again. So um, if we do have a bad stock market year, um, Typically, that would be because um, there's some forecast. To, the market is expecting some uh, slowdown in the economy and, and profit margins for companies. If that's the case, then I would expect interest rates uh, to decline as a result, um, just because there's more demand for bonds um, than, and people are selling stocks. And so uh, you would hope that investors would be diversified by holding bonds in a period where uh, the stock market is selling off. And so going to go ahead and say, I don't know if the stock market is going to sell off this year, but if it does, I'm um, making a bet that that bonds offer diversification. Thoughts on that, Greg? I, I don't really have that much, that many thoughts on that, except I hope you're right, because that's one of the core tenets of our philosophy that, you know, you have bonds to offer like stability and, or a hedge against stock market portfolio, because that's what's been the case historically. I, I think that, I think you're probably right. Um, it's not what's happened the first few days of the year, obviously we've had this sort of similar, um, downward movement on stocks and also downward movement or higher yields on bonds. Um, but I think that's probably what's going to take place. The issue that we had coming off the last couple of years is we were coming off an incredibly unprecedented time. That's kind of like a 
a double negative, I guess, but the, we came off of an unprecedented time from the standpoint of COVID and the government injecting so much money into the economy that I think that threw everything out of whack. Um, and we can, we're also coming off one of the biggest or coming off the single most fastest increase cycles in the feds, uh, rate rising rate increasing cycle. So I think that once after the, that, that seems to have be working its way through, obviously we and that's what was the big impetus for the, the stock and mark bond markets to move up. Um, and and get sort of ratcheted uh, back to normality, and hopefully it's normality. Um, but I, so I think you're probably going to be right, and I think that's a pretty good observation. One of the other things that I'll be looking at is, and we've talked about this just a minute ago, is that U.S. stocks are trading at 19 times earnings. International stocks are trading at 13 times earnings or something like that. All else being equal, we have obviously some tech companies that don't, that they, there's not any sort of equivalence, equivalence to on the international scale. And if you look back over normal market cycles, over eventually, sometimes you, sometimes you get a the U.S. outperforms international, international outperforms the U.S. Um, that hasn't happened. I think it's only happened like one time or two times in the last ten years where internationals outperform the U.S. So I think it would be interesting to see. And I'm not making any sort of prediction as it relates to international outperforming the U.S., but it is trading at a substantial discount to the U.S. Um, you buy international for 13 times, the U.S. for 20 times. So that's like a forty percent discount or something like that. Yeah, I will. I will say that the U.S. at twenty times is largely driven by a handful of companies. This is from J.P. Morgan, um, their guide to the markets, which ha- typically uh, is a great resource for um, data as a whole. Uh, you know, valuation, economy, etc. Uh, top ten stocks. This is sort of your magnificent seven trade at twenty-seven times, where the rest of the market trades at seventeen. Um, and so I think that, and I think that when we look at valuations at the S and P five hundred at nineteen and a half times earnings, um, you know, that's a lot of that is driven by uh, the top ten positions of the magnif- magnificent seven technology positions. Seventeen times earnings for the rest of the market is v- very much within fair value range on a historical basis, and uh, is still a premium to international. And I think that. Um, you know, there's going to be years where the international markets do uh, outperform the U.S., whether it's this year or any time in the future. But um, but I think also the other way to position this is if you are someone concerned about valuation, well, one way to com- combat that is just to own, you know, anything but large cap U.S. tech because that's really where the, uh, the high valuations are in the markets. At, you know, that, that's the top 10 at 27 times, but you can concentrate that too. The Magnificent Seven, which trade at a even premium to that. The other sort of interesting thing that so I think that's your that's a really good observation, and, and that the the maybe the driver of the outperformance of international relative to the U.S. is that value does better than than tech or whatever um, in any given year, and that hasn't happened in, in a while. Essentially, the other interesting thing that and prediction that that I'm not necessarily willing to make, but I'll be following very closely. And I think it's a very interesting investment thesis. So while the, the broad markets did really well and the close to twenty or 20 or above twenty, the the actual mic, the microcosms of the um, or the components of the market are really interesting and tell an interesting story. Specifically, consumer staples. So that's this consists of uh, of like tobacco and uh, uh, liquor product. Right, Colgate, et cetera, like things that people are non typically non cyclical, meaning that people are going to be utilizing regardless of the what what phase of the market cycle. People are going to be smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and 
and brushing their teeth and using soap from Unilever or whatever. So Unilever makes Dove soap. That particular segment, Hershey's, Chocolate, Hormel, all these companies are the big, big dogs in that particular space. Uh, Van, this is Vanguard Consumer Staples ETF. This past year, while the over the broad benchmark did like 24% in the U.S., Vanguard Consumer Staples was up 2.41%. Um, Doug, can you tell our listeners why that that particular uh, that why that outcome took place? Well, I have no idea why. I, I my my theory is twofold. Number one, a lot of those staples are like are uh, whether it's food or vices or um, you know a lot of the narrative was around the Ozempic uh, wave and curbing the the uh, demand for uh, whether it's junk food or uh, chocolate or you know cigarettes or beer and uh, and. That was the sort of the theme last year was uh, Eli Lilly or uh, Novo Nordisk, uh, which makes Ozempic, uh, would be you know, curbing that sort of uh, appeal towards uh, whether it's junk food or cigarettes or beer. So that's one side. The other side is, is those are typically risk off type um, trades. So if you're gonna if you're worried about the market and you're worried about the economy, you go to the non-cyclical versus you buy the cyclical. and Gamble. Yeah, right. You don't buy NVIDIA. You don't buy uh, whatever, you know, AI type companies. Like, you, know, you don't get excited about uh, unprofitable venture-backed type companies that trade on a multiple of revenues. And so I think a lot of the underperformance last year was driven by the fact that uh, the market was incredibly bullish throughout the year. And in bullish type years, um, the companies that, whether it's a you know, dividend paying, high dividend paying type companies, slow growth companies, um, you know, recession resistant companies, those are not in favor. And so if we do have a period of reversal this year where the economy is slowing down and the market is more worried about growth and wants safety, then you would see those types of companies outperform. Uh, first couple of days of the year, that's, that's essentially been the trend is that um, the high flying technology is sold off while a the uh, tobacco companies and you know, healthcare companies and consumer staples have uh, risen. And so um, at least for three trading days of the year, which you can't really gain any sort of insight from, uh, that's uh, that's the position of the market. Right. And there could be, to, to the extent that there was Ozempic-related um, selling in these particular positions, which there, which there certainly was. I mean, if you look at Hershey's stock price, for example, is HSY. At its peak last year, it was... Um, and again, this is like, you know, they, they sell chocolate and chocolate syrup and all kinds of things like that, which are like just absolute, I mean, n- under normal circumstances, you would think that that business is not going anywhere. But an, on March 1st of 2023, it was trading at $260 a share. And then at the end of uh, the year, it got down to like in the 180s range. So like something like a, a 30 or 40% drop in six months. Um, so I think that the, the, just like anything, um, the, the market reacted very quickly and maybe perhaps too quickly after having six weeks straight up or whatever. We're due for a little bit of uh, ch- choppiness. The The market also reacted very negatively in the in the theme of Ozempic's going to change the world or whatever, make people eat less, drink less, smoke less. So maybe that is also something that is a interesting trade this year, like Diageo, which is the largest hard liquor producer in the world. And they also own Guinness beer, but they make Smirnoff and a bunch of scotches and everything. They're a British-based company. December 1st of 2021 
was $220 a share. Um, and right now it's 142. So it's trading at multi-year lows. You could say the same thing across the board for a lot of other companies, um, that fit, fit in that same demographic, cigarette companies, et cetera, that, um, that, that have any sort of addictive component to it, like food or whatever. So I think that's going to be another interesting play. But one thing about any inter- interesting plays, and this is a quote from William Feather, and I think if you if we don't have anything else to add, Doug, I'll, I'll close the podcast with this. This is William Feather, famed investor, uh, open quotes. One of the funniest things about the stock market is that every time a person buys, another one sells, and both think that they are astute. So the people that are betting that you know we're we're having the this discussion about well the market may have swung too hard against uh, Hershey's or Diageo or Philip Morris or whatever. Um, there's another person on the other side of that trade that thinks the opposite, and that that maybe they and maybe they're right. And uh, so anyway, that's a really interesting thing about the market, and that that quote um, I think epitomizes that that sentiment that exists. Yep, absolutely. All right, we'll see you next week. Happy New Year, and uh, here's to a prosperous 2024. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.